I once had a pastor who one time he tripped on his way up into the pulpit and dropped everything, spilled it all over the platform. And he would often say, and it was appropriate that day, welcome to our church where we don't take ourselves seriously, but we take the Lord seriously. So some days we need reminded of that. The Lord's gracious to give us those reminders. Around the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays in our country, we often sense and hear about a great emphasis on family and being with family and friends, home for the holidays, sitting by the fire together, things like that. And that really is a very difficult aspect of this time of year for some folks on account of relationships they do or don't have in that regard. Maybe you've lost a lot of family, and this is a time when you think about them. Or maybe uh, you've had family members who are really just in conflict with others, and it's, it can be very difficult. I've observed this year especially how, how common the expectation is that families and relatives will not get along when they come together, that, that holiday gatherings would be a time of conflict. And it's just occurred to me in a number of different ways that we see that a lot. And maybe you can relate to that. Um, if, you, if you watch TV or advertising or, or news, maybe, you, maybe a show you like to watch has some kind of holiday episode or something. You've probably noticed this, that there's, you know, it doesn't really sell in TV as much when people are all getting along and there's harmony. What sells is conflict and there's there's kind of an expectation of that. And there is, of course, something relatable about that. When you come together with family you haven't seen for some time and you're a year older, a year more set in your ways maybe, and everyone else is too, and maybe you're not ready for it. Sometimes the fireworks can, the sparks can fly, right? Sometimes you feel like you just need to hold your tongue so there's not conflict. And we read today, in the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin, but he who is wise restrains his tongue. There is wisdom in that. But as you think biblically, where does this conflict come from? When we see it in the world that there's this expectation of conflict, we need to think biblically. How do we think about this? And we're in 1 Thessalonians 5, and we'll get there. I'm actually going to kind of start just by way of introduction in James chapter 4. This is a really important passage on conflict, James writes in chapter four that conflict comes as desires turn into idols. We want something that we don't have, and so we fight to get it. Have you ever thought about this? When you get in an argument, sometimes you didn't even see the argument coming, and you're in it before you even realize it's there. What is going on? Well, you both have desires, and your desires are in conflict with one another, and you want what you want, and you'll fight to get it. And that's in all of us. That's everybody. We will all sin to get what we want. We fight for our idols, whether that's maybe at the holidays. It's, it's the idol of being right in some disagreement or, or of receiving the idol of receiving recognition for some accomplishment. And you're not getting what you want, so you're going to fight for it. There's conflict over it. Or you want some affirmation of some life choice that you made and people aren't giving it, so you lash out at them. 
But just before that, in James chapter 3, James really puts his finger on something, really some devilish wisdom that lies behind all of that. And when we speak about wisdom in the Bible, we're, we're really speaking about a kind of skill. Was, uh, Solomon was wise, and he knew a lot of things. He knew how to use knowledge. There are some craftsmen in the Bible who are wise in their skill. They're very good at what they did. They could make beautiful creations. They were wise. Well, you know what? The devil has a certain kind of wisdom. James asks, or he, he speaks about uh, how crafty the devil is, and really the, the devilish wisdom that lies behind this conflict. The devil really can sow discord. How so? Well, James asks in James 13 about wisdom. Who is wise? Well, wisdom acts in gentleness. He says the opposite of this gentleness is jealousy and selfish ambition. Are you ever zealous for yourself? Yes, of course, we all are at times. Do you ever have strife in your heart? You just don't really want peace? That isn't biblical spiritual wisdom. James calls it earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's devilish when you carry around zeal for yourself in your heart, and when you carry around contentious strife in your heart toward others. But he says God's wisdom is pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable full of good mercy, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, unhypocritical. So why, why, why do you see so much conflict around the holidays and the expectation of it? Well, because we're sinners, to be sure, it comes from our hearts where we have idols that we want and we'll fight to get them. But it's also because the devil is cunning, right? He loves to turn people against one another about politics, about parenting, about family values, about who to pick as you know, the, the next person to lead this organization. The devil is a master at sowing discord among God's people and especially among those who are zealous and contentious for their own desires. And there's a real danger here, not just of one-time sin, but of ruin in your faith. And God knows the danger of this, and that's why we're talking about it. If there's, if there's always pressure against the faith of God's people from the world, you could say from the outside, sometimes also pressure against your faith comes home. And it comes inside the doors, inside the four walls of your house, inside the four walls of this church. And there can be such discord among God's people that people's faith is ruined. They just leave the faith altogether. There's danger. And maybe you know this. Maybe you've known someone in this situation. Sometimes the greatest trial of your faith, it almost seems like this soul-crushing pressure comes when your closest relationships are not right. That's sometimes the place that we're most vulnerable. In our text today, Nearing the end of this first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul highlights for the church at Thessalonica the urgency of God's sheep being in right, being right in their relationships. The urgency of God's sheep being right 
in their relationships. And in light of the rest of the letter, you could say that the purpose of this, this, this theme here in these verses is to show the necessity of right relationships for persevering in your faith. If you're not in right relationships with the people that you're closest to, that's going to be a real trial of your faith. And that could really wage war on your faith in a way that could really be detrimental to your faith. Because God preserves us by sanctifying us. And that includes in our closest relationships. The relationships at home, the relationships at church, as we'll see. Part of what can press against your faith is sour relationships among the flock. And so part of what we need sanctified in is how we relate to one another in the church. And that includes sometimes your spouse. Your relationships must be right if you're going to persevere in your faith. And maybe you'd say, okay, is that a little bit of a stretch? Is this really that big of a deal? And the answer for everybody here, everybody, is yes, it is a big deal. Because when our relationships aren't right, especially in the closest, what do we do? We withdraw, right? Have you seen this happen? Their relationships aren't right at church. And what do people do? They just, they kind of withdraw. They grow cold. They leave. And this isn't, I'm going to go to another church and receive good teaching. It's just, I'm not really, I'm not really in church. I don't really do the church thing anymore. And it's like their heart ice is over because something's not right. And maybe you've seen this in marriage. This is a big deal. We cannot grow indifferent. This could be something that the devil uses to ruin something. When our relationships aren't right, especially our closest ones, we're vulnerable spiritually. It puts us on the fringe where we're easy to be picked off. So let's look and see three directions, really. First, interestingly, Paul turns this church's attention to their pastors, to the other people in the flock, the other sheep, and then to God. Three relationships. We'll consider them as we have time. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's finish the, the book. We won't get to these verses today. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. 
Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As Paul in the second half of this letter has turned to matters of their sanctification, things they need to know and do in order to grow strong in their faith so that it's not toppled by the opposition that comes against it. Paul has considered various things. He's concerned, he's considered their morality. This is God's will for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from immorality, he says at the beginning of chapter four. This is not why God has called us. Then he turns to love in verse nine. As to the love of the brethren, you need to keep going. Don't stop. Don't give up. And then he turns to matters of the future. Don't lose hope. This concerns your faith and your hope and your love. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. There's a resurrection coming. Christ is coming again. And as we considered last week, he also wants them to be sober about God's coming in judgment and their eternal destiny with him in glory. Now, finally, he turns to, you may have a heading there, Christian conduct, I, I believe, especially in view is relationships here. What could really rot the roots of the tree of your faith is rotten relationships. A rotten relationship with your pastor, a rotten relationship with another sheep, a rotten relationship with God. You see in verse 12 that the view is those who labor among you and have charge over you and give you instruction. This is pastors. Then at the end of verse 13 and into verse 14, live in peace with one another. The word actually is yourselves. Live in peace with yourselves. And then he turns to specifically, not just any sheep, but per particularly you could say problematic sheep, sheep that need attention. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and he gives these exhortations. And then in verse 16, he turns to your relationship with God. Rejoice always. What is God doing in your life? Are you rejoicing in it? Pray without ceasing. Are you praying to other sheep? No, you're praying to God. This is about you and God. In everything, give thanks to God, for this is God's will for you. Do not quench the Spirit, God the Spirit who lives inside of you, brethren. Do not despise, you could say, God's word, but examine, keep, and abstain from evil. So three relationships, and just a word about the sheep language here. I do believe I've titled the sermon this morning, Healthy Flock Relationships. And I don't mean to, to be a distraction by using that language. I think it's helpful. It's scriptural language. Even when we use, we use the word pastor. If you've heard of a pastoral symphony, uh, it's talking about kind of a, a shepherd scene, right? A pastor is a shepherd. They're under shepherds of the great shepherd, but God calls his people his sheep. And as his people, we are a flock together. We're all sheep. So even as I use that language, we ought to think in terms of all of us. We're all in this position. And what does Paul turn to first? He says, sheep should honor their shepherds. And in God's wisdom, I believe this is why uh, part of the wisdom of expositional preaching, this in my own frailty, this might be a text that I would overlook or I would skip over just because it's a little maybe easy to be feel strange to preach about. But God's word says it. Paul wrote it to this church. 
He says, sheep, honor your shepherds, the ones that God has given you. And what does he say? We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those. And he gives a description of them. And then in verse 13, and that you esteem them very highly. So know them first and appreciate them deeply is what Paul encourages this flock to do. And if you think of Paul's setting, before we consider exactly what he's saying, he's writing to a church in a region. They did not have a nice building with a steeple at this time. Many of the churches are meeting in houses, perhaps many within a single city, and certainly a number within a given region. There are probably a number of shepherds in view here of a very small flock meeting in a house. So as these people are reading, maybe in, a, in an unusual gathering of a greater number of smaller churches, they're thinking of a lot of different shepherds that they have. That's not exactly like it works for us today. But he says, know them and appreciate them deeply. And these words that he's using here, appreciate them. It's not just facts about them. Uh, the word appreciate is the word know. Just very simply, the word know them, but not just acknowledge them, not a know about them. Don't just have facts about them. The word has the idea of acquaintance. It's the knowledge of experience and understanding. Have you ever had this experience where you read about something in a book and then you live it and you realize, I had no idea what I learned? This is the knowledge of experience. It's not just the knowledge of your pastor, you know, where he got his education, what kind of clothes he wears, you know, what his family's like, where he's from, but the knowledge of his strengths, maybe the, the knowledge of the benefits that you've received from him, ways that you can pray for him, even, I think, relevant to this passage, ways that your pastor may call you to obey God's word. This really is a call to fellowship with a pastor rather than to avoid him. And this ought to be a relationship of trust, I believe is part of what this passage bears out. This kind of knowledge is the knowledge of knowing, but also of being known, right? When we use the word fellowship, this isn't just a one-way street. When you're building a relationship, what does that require? It requires sharing and appreciating and Self-disclosure, right? If you're, a, if you're a stone wall, you're not going to really have much of a relationship with anybody, are you? This pastoral relationship ought to be one of fellowship, of being known. Relationships are a two-way street. They, they require vulnerability and self-disclosure. And I'm not talking about kind of a, a, a naive, just gushing and you know, I, you need to know everything about me. It's not, it's not immaturity, but appropriate sharing of burdens and of needs. Because God gives pastors for our good. God gives all of us pastors for our good. And I include myself in that. And I would say, I would ask by way of application, just before we get into more of what Paul is saying, to this particular idea of knowing when a pastor is encouraging you to obey the Lord, do you know what it sounds like to be called to obey the Lord? Do you know the voice of the human shepherd that God has given you in that way? Of course, pastors need to take warning from pa passages like this because their calls to obey ought to be confined to the calls of Scripture. 
but as ones to, to use the language of Hebrews 13, ones who give watch over your soul for your good. At times they may need, they, they may see a need for correction in your life. Do you know, that's the word I'm focusing on. Do you know what that sounds like? And do you respond to it? Know your pastor, appreciate him deeply, Paul says. But he also uses a little bit of different language in verse 13, that you esteem them very highly in love. This word esteem really is just regard or consider, be of an opinion about them. But then the word he attaches to it is beyond all measure, very highly. This is the word Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 3, a word that we love in this passage, Ephesians 3, where God acts. Chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, without measure. Don't even try to calculate how much you should honor them, is what Paul is saying. It is uh, the prevailing opinion in our house that I'm very thankful for, that when you make brownies or cookies, you do not measure the chocolate chips, right? Do you want somebody measuring out two-thirds of a cup of chocolate chips for your chocolate chip cookies? No, you don't want the measurement. You also don't want to look at how many ounces are in that bag. You just want the whole thing in there, right? But even that bag of chocolate chips, that has a limit, right? And whatever it is, eight ounces, 12 ounces. This is beyond all measure. This isn't calculating how much should I honor this person. It's beyond calculation. And I do believe, and I say this because scripture says this, it should be financially. Uh, consider those who labor, especially at preaching and teaching, worthy of a double honor, is what scripture says. That's part of how, in God's wisdom, his word is proclaimed and put forward. But it's not just that. How can you honor someone without money being in view? Well, this can be in the way that you think about them, the way that you are disposed towards them, your disposition towards them, your attention to their words, your trust in their counsel. Do you ever honor a trusted parent by giving attention to the advice that they give you? You can consider a pastor, and I believe based on this text, you ought to consider your pastor someone worth listening to. The opposite of honoring them would be despising them, just kind of treating their word with contempt, right? But who is Paul talking about? Know them, appreciate them, esteem them, honor them, hold them in high regard. Who is this? We've kind of skipped over these words, but how does he describe them? Appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And he's talking about the same person or the set of people and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And then later he refers to their work. He's talking about people who labor in your midst. This, this word really, you know, when you go to gym and you go to the gym and you go into the locker room and it just smells like sweat. It never goes away. It's got that same odor. This word smells like sweat, okay? This is wearying themselves, working hard, toiling. Those who are wearying themselves among you. And Paul also describes them as having charge over you in the, in the Lord. This word is leading you, managing, guiding the group. They're active in helping you. 
And they also instruct, or you may have in your margin, admonish. It's not a word we use a lot, but it's a word that'll come up later. Maybe if you've done much reading on uh, biblical counseling, you've come across the term nuthetic counseling. That's kind of a, a straight rip from the Greek. This word is nutheteo. Admonish. It's putting something in someone's mind, giving them reminders, warning them, making observations to them. This is really kind of the education part of loving discipline. When we talk about discipline, often we think about the rod, right? Or we think about the, the scary part of church discipline where it's formal and public. But there's many other ways that God is disciplining his church, even preemptively by the word as people are responding to the word and in their own hearts realize they need to turn from sin. Of course, the Lord can discipline his people at the Lord's table, like we're often reminded. For this reason, some of you are sick and some have died. That's God's discipline of his people. This, this word admonish is part of the, you could call it preemptive discipline. Warnings, stay away from sin. Turn from your sin, be right in your relationships. If you're not doing that, that those things, then of course it could rise to the level of where God's gonna come after you with the whole church and bring you back. But this isn't that. This is everything that comes before that. They're instructing you. They're admonishing you. They're warning you. They're teaching you, calling out what's coming. And by way of application, of course, there's warning. And there's just description of what shepherds do. Pastoring is labor. The, the hard work of being an example course of teaching of counseling of like like paul writes keep an eye on yourself and on the teaching the work of leading the labor of laying yourself out for others of spending and being spent pastors ought to be doing this they ought to be spending themselves and being spent for god's people there's instruction there for pastors but pastoring isn't just labor. It includes leading. Paul says they have charge over you in the Lord. There's the group to manage. There's needs to have oversight of. There's people with souls who need guidance. Pastors are God-appointed authorities in our lives. And that's part of why it's a concern when there are those who claim to be Christians who won't submit themselves to a pastor in the context of a local church. It's just, it's not a human idea. Pastors aren't trying to trick everybody into giving them a job. This is something that God does. And of course, pastors are not autocrats. They have charge over you in the Lord. They're not going to live your life for you, and they ought not to. Scripture is very clear in warning pastors, not lording it over them. This is a gentle leadership, not a heavy-handed, not an overbearing leadership. Of course, there is such a thing as unbiblical, heavy-handed leadership at church, just like at home. But of course, inherent in the idea of leadership is followship, right? God gives shepherds, under shepherds, who are themselves sheep following the great shepherd. But God gives sheep to that shepherd. 
everybody has authority in their lives. And this, this idea prevalent in our world that I just need to be in a place where I'm my own boss, there is no such thing. And of course, if you're self-employed and you love that, that's awesome. And I'm happy for you. But you're still under authority. God gave you family. God gave you government. God gave you the church. Everyone is under authority. Whether we want it or not, it's for our good. And that authority is accountable to God to do what God appointed it to do. You think of those sobering words that God gives to government leaders. God puts them there. Whether you like them or not, God does that. And even if we have an opportunity to elect them, God's hand is in that. And they are put there for your good. And if they're not doing you good, that's on them. What's on you is how you submit to them. They will give an account, but you will too. And God hasn't put you in authority unless he has, of course. It's the same at church. Can God care for us without a pastor? Of course he can. God does not need men. God shepherds and disciplines his people perfectly, despite even poor shepherds. But in his wisdom, God has done this, and we ought to acknowledge it. Pastoring includes leadership and authority in the Lord. Pastor, pastoring also includes teaching. They have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction or admonition. We need to be fed on scripture. If you imagine a flock being driven out of the city and into the fields and eating the grass and the shepherd is showing them different places so they don't totally destroy the field that they're in because they're silly sheep and they don't know how to care for themselves. Pastors need to feed sheep, not on grass, but on the word. We need reminded of it. We need walked through it. We need guided by it. We need fed on it. And God gives, in the language of Ephesians 4, he gives pastor teachers to the church to build it up, to feed it in this way. Of course, we need to be feeding ourselves as God's given us the opportunity to walk with him by his word. It's the truth that edifies. We don't, we don't teach our own ideas. That's not what shepherds do. That's not what sheep ought to look for. We shouldn't desire that. Teachers that tickle our ears, right? They will amass to themselves people who tell them what they want to hear. Pastoring includes faithful teaching of the word of God. And I would say, as we, as we think about our context, as we think about your own experiences, if you have that in your pastors here or wherever else God has you, praise God for that. You know who came up with those ideas? Not your pastor. Scripture is clear that God equips men for that work. God gives them to a church. God uses them. God works in that man. It's not about the man, although we might appreciate that man, and we ought to honor the man and esteem him. We may love him dearly. It really is ultimately about the goodness and the wisdom of God. And we should keep that, keep that clearly in our view when we consider how to obey this, how we treat pastors. You sing often the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. If a pastor has been a blessing to you, thank him, but thank God. Praise God. God has done that. So who is this? It's pastors. It's those who labor and teach and lead. How ought we to do this? Paul says that you esteem them very highly in love. 
in love. Sacrificially, humbly, appreciatively, with a, with a view towards God because God loved you constantly. Love never fails, right? And why, in particular? Paul says, because of, on account of their work. Their position, the work that God gave them to do, but also their, their labor on your behalf. Praise God, it's not on account of their perfection. Nobody can reach that. It's on account of they're doing what Paul describes. Are they faithful? Are they faithful to the Lord? That's why these men deserve honor. This doesn't, of course, again, pronounce shepherds to be infallible or almighty. The best of men are bet men at best, the saying goes, right? We're all human. We're all sinners. We're all prone to error. But it does mean that if you have a shepherd I think we could say this if you have a shepherd who's trying to do you good for the sake of your own soul and you resist him it's not just a person that you're resisting you're resisting god's good hand in your life and i just in thinking about that I, I think it might be helpful to consider the parallel that this has to the parent-child relationship doesn't god instruct children to honor their parents and everywhere that, that that command is given, it's attached to blessings. Especially in the Old Testament, you'll live long on the earth. The Jews had a particular blessing if they kept the law. But in the New Testament as well, there are blessings. And you see this, you know this, our experience bears it out, that there really is great blessing to those who submit to and honor their parents. Why is this? How does this work? Well, you've seen it. Children who buck against their parents and insist on their own way, they're miserable. They think they're happy, but they're not. They're rebels, and they're in their sin. <clears throat> they think that their own way is best, and that they know what they need to know. And when they get it, they get heartache. They get hardship. But children who honor their parents and listen to them and heed them, even into their adult lives, and esteem them and remember what they've been taught by them, they... They get all the benefits of the life experience of their parents, don't they? You remember what it was like, maybe, when you were, when you finally hit 30 and you realized, you know, my parents were right about everything. Maybe it was earlier than that. Maybe it was later. Man, he really was right. He knew what he was talking about. You get all those benefits. If you listen to them, the proud are the ones who don't learn. It's the humble who learn. Children who honor their parents, they, they get so much wisdom from their parents, if they have godly parents especially, on account of their, their humility to learn. They find protection from wicked people and wicked influences that they just don't have the understanding to look out for, but their parents do. And of course, they have God's smile on them because they obeyed God in doing that. And you could, almost, you could also say that they have the protection of their parents' accountability to God. Because if their parents insist on them doing something that's not sinful, but the, the child doubts and the child rebels against that and doesn't do it, they're accountable to God for that. But if they submit to their parents, their parents are accountable to God for that. They have that protection too. So pastors aren't your dad, uh, unless in the case of a few, they actually are. Um, but, but the blessing, I think, could be made more clear if we think in those terms. The, the, the pastoral relationship. Pastors 
are an authority given by God, given by God for our good. We might not think we need it, but God knows it's for good, and we shouldn't resist it. In fact, we should do the opposite based on this passage. We should lean in. We should love. We should honor that man as from God himself. That's the route to blessing. That's how God intends to bless his people. It's part of his design. God gives us people to help us maintain our faith. And we ought to rejoice in that and maintain that relationship to honor our pastors for us to persevere in our faith. But that's not the only relationship that matters in the church. Paul, it seems, turns next toward the group, toward the other sheep. And I think you could summarize it this way. Sheep must love each other. The end of verse 13, live in peace with yourselves, with one another. We urge you, brethren, same people, admonish the unruly and encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And there are kind of two groups within the group, you could say, that are in view towards the whole flock. What's the expectation? It's peace. Be at peace with yourselves. But then Paul turns towards the spiritually needy, not just anybody in general, but those within the church who are maybe consistently, persistently, who knows, spiritually needy. But first, towards the whole flock, be at peace with yourselves. Be peacemakers. Be at peace with other Christians. That has pastors in view, that has deacons in view, that has everyone in view. This is how spirit-led people live. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. The spirit's in you and at work. This is how Christians live. If you're not at peace with someone, is the spirit at work in you? And this isn't, if I can make application, this isn't just the absence of conflict, right? This is the presence of actual ongoing harmony and union. And if you think of this Old Testament idea of shalom, peace, wholeness, and wellness, there are positive requirements of peace, harmony. Sometimes when we talk about world peace, we think of the absence of conflict. It's easy to be indifferent, isn't it? It's easy. It takes work to achieve harmony and unity and reconciliation. That takes work. And of course, we do this most with our words, don't we? There isn't peace where there isn't communication. If there isn't communication, there is not peace. You might say, well, I don't talk to my wife. We don't fight. Well, you don't talk to your wife. There's not peace. Lack of communication is either indifference or hostility or hard-heartedness towards your spouse, towards someone at church. And this does go for church and at home. This includes towards your children, towards your parents, towards your spouse, your husband or your wife. Children, are you at peace with your parents? Children, honor your parents. 
Husbands, are you at peace with your wives? Paul says, do not be embittered against them. That's a temptation for men. Wives, are you at peace with your husbands? Paul says, submit to them. Don't be contentious against them. Do you ever respond with sharp words? Do you, do you take offense easily when someone brings something up? Do you suspect other people's motives? Do you assume the worst about people? To be at peace, especially with those who are closest to us, that really does require self-control with our words and in our spirit. It requires a commitment to reconcile if we do mess up because we all have tongues. And if you control your tongue perfectly, you're a perfect man. This goes for all of us. You've got to reconcile. Admit that you were wrong. Ask for forgiveness. Identify your sin. Call it what God calls it. And then promise forgiveness. There's got to be that exchange. I won't bring it up against you. I won't hold it against you. When Jesus describes this, Peter is astounded. Remember? How many times? Seven? Should I forgive this guy seven times? That's pretty good, right? How high should I let my my spouse run up the score before I, I just don't forgive anymore? No, Jesus says, 70 times seven. Don't even keep score. It's not about the score. Don't be a scorekeeper. Forgive. Be at peace. Unless you think that this isn't a big deal that you can go on in this. Ephesians chapter four. Paul writes, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. This strikes at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance with one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The spirit creates unity in the church, and we have to maintain it. Are you maintaining the peace of the church, or are you harming it? This is serious. It's not just about your marriage. It's not just about your parent-child relationship. It's not just about you and that other person. It's about the whole church. Maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Be at peace with yourselves. It's a command from scripture. And you see very easily, very quickly, why this could wage war against your soul if it's not. If you're not at peace, what are you at? You're at odds. You're at odds with God's people. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. If you're not at peace, you're not loving other people. If we say we have fellowship with God and we hate our brother, we hate him and we're not willing to forgive him, whatever it is, we lie. We're walking in the darkness. You're deceiving yourself if you're not living at peace with God's people. This is serious. Be at peace with yourselves. That's the requirement towards the whole flock. But then Paul turns toward the spiritually needy, I think you could say. And what's the requirement towards them? I think you could summarize it by wisdom. We looked at James chapter 3, spiritual wisdom. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Watch out for the vengeful. That's what he says next. And we'll note this later as we have time. 
These all go go both ways. This is written towards the whole church. We all bear the responsibility to do this towards others. It's not just pastors who admonish, pastors who bear patiently. Every single person in the church must do all of these things. But just as we think about this, we should also recognize that this is how a pastor and another person may relate to us. If we are unruly, if we are weak, it goes both ways. But what does Paul say first? Admonish the froward, as I've alliterated a little bit here. Admonish. This is the same word of what pastors do. Give instruction, nutheteo, putting something in someone's mind, warning them about their way of life, making observations about what's going on. Again, this is the, the education part of the discipline that we all need. Admonish those who are unruly, those who are disorderly or undisciplined or maybe even lazy. But I think it really has in view unlawful. You can think here maybe in terms of like the phrase we use, the black sheep of the family, right? And I, I know that's subject to a lot of ways of thinking, but maybe this this one who's in, just insists on being different or on resisting the expectations of the family, this same term, the unruly, is used with reference to an insubordinate military officer who just refuses to take orders, who refuses to act on orders given to him by a commanding officer. It's proud, it's rebellious, it's short-sighted, it's dangerous. And frankly, it kind of appeals to our, our independent American spirit, doesn't it? You see this kind of thing in movies and in TV where the guy who won't listen to the, the dunderhead of a commander finally goes out and saves his whole crew and he's the hero, right? But he was insubordinate. Someone acting against the better judgment of someone over them for their good. This could be kind of unruly morally against God's order. They're disorderly morally. They're refusing to work. They're, they're not submitting to authority at home, whether that's a husband or a parent or some, something else. It could be societal disorder against government's order, kind of a, a rebel spirit, disrespectful words. You've seen this online always living at the edge of the law, proclaiming, you know, if this happens, then I'm going to rebel. They've got rebellious tendencies. They're, they're against society, societal order. Or it could just be communal. It could be against the church's order, kind of acting against the, like we have a church covenant, acting against the church covenant, trying to bring about change in an ungodly or ambitious way, not submitting quickly and joyfully to pastoral leadership. Constantly resisting gentle prods towards obedience. There's disorder. There's unruliness. And again, this is given to everyone to do. You may be familiar with the name Jay Adams. He wrote a book, I believe it's called Competent to Counsel, that really kind of started a, a biblical counseling movement, really based on the conviction of a verse like Romans 15, 14, that says, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Paul was convinced that the church at Rome had everything they needed to counsel each other, to warn each other. And it wasn't just the pastors. It was because of the people there. And Christians, because they have the word, are competent to do this. In fact, they're responsible to do it. 
God gives the church what it needs for growth. He gives pastors to the church as a gift, but they're not the only gift. God gives all sorts of gifts to the church. People with all sorts of life experience, all sorts of ways that he has led them and guided them and brought them to obedience. He gives spiritual gifts, ability to exhort, to come alongside and encourage and to console. All of these other things, we need to be using these things for one another. Paul is writing to the whole group, we urge you, brethren. It's the same group he's been writing to the whole letter. It's the whole church. Admonish the unruly. We should be careful not to be busybodies. And if any of you sees one who's overtaken in a fault, let him take heed to himself, lest he too is tempted, Paul says. We ought to be very careful. But God gives you as a church member what you need for growth within the church for yourself. But he also gives other church members what they need by giving them you. We all bear this responsibility to warn one another, to admonish one another. If we see that somebody's unruly, can't just assume that that's the pastor's job. Admonish the froward, but also encourage the fearful. Paul says next, encourage the faint hearted. This word here is to console or, or comfort or advise like a father does toward his children. This is what Paul said earlier in the letter. It's usually in the context of loss or sorrow. Someone is faint-hearted in the face of some loss. Mary and Martha were faint-hearted. Uh, excuse me. There were people who were encouraging them, consoling them when they lost Lazarus. This word is often used in that context of loss. But this word faint-hearted really is, is feeble-minded or uh, small-souled. They're, they're, they're of a little spirit. And this would be in contrast to someone who's just lion-hearted. You know, they've got a brave heart. There's nothing too big for them. They're always willing to jump into the next thing, no matter how badly they failed. You might call them an optimist. You might call them whatever else. But this is someone who's just easily cowed into, into silence. They feel like they can't do it alone. Their spirit just wilts at the prospect of life and circumstances that they have to face. Maybe they're easily overwhelmed with sorrow or responsibility. Why would somebody feel small and incapable due to loss? Nobody, nobody wants to think of themselves as small soul. We all like to cast ourselves as, you know, the lion-hearted, right? Well, maybe, what would it be like if you lost a, a provider or somebody who is just a stabilizing influence, maybe a parent or a spouse? What does it feel like for someone who's been your rock to die? That's overwhelming. You feel vulnerable. You're full of sorrow. You feel tiny. Or maybe these people, as they turn to Christ and they lose all of their social network, because people are shunning them. What does it feel like to lose that? Again, that's vulnerable, humanly speaking. All of the help and the support and the comfort that you had is gone. And it's actually replaced with ill will and hostility. That makes you feel real small. What's going to happen if this? What will I do if these people turn against me? These are thoughts of fear. They're they're the words of somebody with a feeble mind. And who hasn't said these things to themselves? 
What do we need then? Of course, we need to think what is true. We need to live in reality. We need to depend on the grace that God has given us for today. We need to look to Christ. But the point is, when you're in that spot, you can't do all of that by yourself. It's not a given that you're going to make it through that. You need help, and God has given you help. In fact, encourage the faint-hearted. We need one another. We need comfort. We need advice. We need support. Sometimes just in the form of a listening ear, right? You need that. I need that. And we both need to offer it at times. We need to be sensitive to that. That's part of how we love one another. And the point in all of this isn't to just identify people and say, well, they're that and I'm not. Well, that's good. It's not, it's not that. We're all going to find ourselves in various of these positions. We're all weak. The point is, how do we care for people when they are there? How do we interact with them? What's our responsibility to one, one another? Encourage the fearful. Embrace the fragile. Help the weak, Paul says. The, the help here has the idea of be devoted to them. Jesus says, you cannot have two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will cling to one and despise the other. That word cling is this word. You're devoted to it. And you, you see the idea of the, the, the imagery of this. Devotion is just this grasping onto it. You're not going to let them go. This fragile person, this person fragile in their faith, you're going to cling to them. Maybe they're, they're not resilient in their faith. Maybe they're full of doubt. Maybe they're susceptible to temptation. They're sensitive to things based on their own experience that might not even be sin. They just don't know. But in the context and in the usage of this word, there's a definite proneness to sin, either through sinning against their conscience or, or, or their vulnerability to their fleshly desires. This person might often be falling into sin. They don't, they don't have the spiritual instincts to turn from sin and repent right away. They need help. They need people to look out for them. They need people to pray for them. They need people to be devoted to them. And to hold them up lest they, they fall and just be destroyed in their sin. We need to know one another. We need to counsel each other. We need to encourage one another towards righteousness, towards repentance. If we're not repenting, how do we call ourselves Christians? We're walking the path of destruction. If we're not turning from our sin. We'll have to leave for another time other spiritual needs, enduring the frustrating, examining the vengeful. Watch out that you're not taking revenge. Do you take revenge in your own life? Do you hold on to anger to get even with others? This is serious. Instead, pursue good towards one another and towards all. We must be in right relationships, the closest relationships at church toward our pastor, toward other fellowship. We need to be right with one another. This is how we honor the Lord. This is how we maintain our testimony that we love the Lord. This is how we maintain our faith. These are people that God has given to us for our good. And if we insist on living at odds with other people, we're in a dangerous path. We are vulnerable to the devil. May the Lord help us to love one another, walk wisely, to live at peace, 
with each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us people that we love for our good. Thank you for giving gifts to the church, yes, and pastors and teachers, but also in those who encourage and who serve and who have great wisdom and many other things. Lord, we have benefited in many ways. When we stop to think about it, we, we have received so many gifts in the form of people at our church that we ought to praise you for. I pray that you'd help us to be right with one another. Help us not to walk in an unreconciled way with each other, but to be at peace and to preserve the peace that you've created here. Lest we become hardened in our sin and we forsake everything good that you've shown toward us. Help us to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Help us to submit to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.